This month on Security Management Highlights. They also track the U.S. employee engagement rate on a daily basis, and they do that through a 12-question survey. Why does one study say employees in the United States are feeling disengaged on the job, and how can managers help? Senior Editor Mark Tarallo has the scoop on best practices for employee engagement. One of the things about airports is they tend to be more of a, a transnational target. In many ways, they're much like attacking a large international hotel. Scott Stewart from global intelligence company Stratfor joins us to talk about the evolution of airport attacks and how the security industry has responded. Plus, certainly as an FBI agent, that was you know, foremost in my mind, the same as in private industry, and that is taking care of your people, your facilities, your operations, and your reputation. A member spotlight on former FBI Special Agent Tony Kravitz. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. A recent Gallup poll shows that just 33% of U.S. workers report feeling engaged with their jobs. Senior Editor Mark Tarallo joins us to talk more about how managers and companies can help make their employees feel more engaged and invested in their work. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Tell us a little bit more about the Gallup poll that you cover in your article, which says that only one-third of American workers report being engaged on the job. Yeah, it's very interesting. The Gallup Company, which is known as one of the leading pollsters in America, actually tracks what they call U.S. employee engagement rate. Gallup's known for tracking things like presidential approval rating, unemployment rate, economic confidence, but they also track the U.S. employee engagement rate on a daily basis, and they do that through a 12-question survey. The survey poses questions such as, at work, do you have the opportunity to do what you do best every day? And through that survey, they crunch the numbers and basically calculate the employee engagement rate for the U.S. workforce, which, by the way, happens to be surprisingly low. The current rate is only about 33%. That means 33% of U.S. workers are engaged the rest are, are not engaged in their jobs. And this rate has really stayed low for the last 15 years. I interviewed Jim Harder, who is chief scientist at Gallup's International Workplace Management and Wellbeing Practices. And he said in the last 15 years, the employee engagement rate has stayed low. It was about 26% in the year 2000. It rose to 33% in 2016. So always uh, surprisingly low. And you even spoke to some sources who think that the line of questioning used by Gallup led to results that don't actually reflect the level of engagement. That's right. Different experts have different views. Some experts say that Gallup's methodology, that 12-question survey, doesn't really come up with numbers that are reflective of the actual employee engagement rate. One expert said if Gallup used different methodology, you know, more accurate methodology, in, in this expert's opinion, Opinion, then the employee engagement rate would be really around 50%. But again, even if that's true, that's still saying half of the U.S. workforce is disengaged. 
So, Mark, you say engagement begins as early as the hiring process. How can managers ensure that they're already looking for signs that the employee will be engaged at such a job? Yeah, that's a big issue. And one expert, I thought, described it well. He said, if you think of the acronym BEST, the employers tend to hire for the middle two letters, E and S, which is education, E, and skills, S. And that's very common and understandable in that an employer thinks, okay, I want someone with a great skill set and also who's well-educated or at least well-trained. But this expert says, really, employers who are looking for a good match should really be also focused on B and T in the BEST acronym, Behaviors and Traits, because a an employee's behaviors and traits reflect their values and what the organization really wants to maximize their chances of getting an engaged employee is that employee's value should match the organization's values. So what would be an example of, you know, values perhaps misaligning and that leading to disengagement? Yeah, for example, if the employee's behaviors and traits really reflect that they value things like doing really high quality customer service, delivering services that really, you know, solve problems, help people out, that really have a value to the customer or client, and let's say the hiring organization rather is really bottom line financially driven in that they're really focused on profit margin, sales goals, and are ranking employees based purely on the numbers. That's not a great values match, and probably the employee is not going to be feel engaged doing that type of work. Now, once the hiring process is over, the employees at the organization, what are some of the ongoing ways that managers can keep employees feeling, you know, invested? Uh, You talk about the performance review as one example. Yeah, what experts really recommend is for managers to have the mindset where they want to engage in a continual conversation with their employees. Doesn't have to be a huge amount of conversation every week. Doesn't have to be like a two-hour conversation every week. Could be sometimes just a quick check-in, sometimes more substantial. But this is an ongoing, continuous, it's two-way, and it really takes the form of coaching. Both the employee and the manager can ask questions, can bring up new ideas. The employee gets feedback from the manager, but it's very much two-way. So the employee also can make suggestions, can even question or disagree with some of what the manager says and and do so in a very comfortable setting. The two-way continual conversation should be very comfortable, not judgmental on either side. And it's a way of the employee knowing always that their idea is going to be heard by their manager, their view is going to be heard, and that really helps keep them engaged. So we've been focused a lot on what managers can do to help, you know, keep employees engaged. Can organizations help with this? Very much so. Organizations are are really crucial because when you think of it, they often set the policy. For instance, we talked about annual reviews. An organization could change their policy and decide, you know what, we're not going to do annual reviews. We'll either do shorter quarterly reviews or quarterly check-ins or some other form of continuous feedback 
that's not just a once a year, you know, here's how we evaluate your performance type of thing. Organizations very much can can change policies. They also can change or even uh, establish a new policy where periodically managers talk to employees and present what they call a line of sight. That's basically showing the employees how the employee's specific work affects the mission of the organization, what impact it has on the outside world, and how it helps the firm move forward and accomplish its goals. Because a lot of employees feel like they're working in a vacuum and they're not really seeing the effects of their work. They're not understanding exactly how their work is furthering the organization. So to establish that line of sight, to help the employees see it, see the value of their work, that's crucial and that's something that an organization can help do. Given those numbers we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, what do your experts say that the future holds for employee engagement rates? Uh, Is there any way that we might see it go up in the future? Yeah, it's interesting because Jim Harder of Gallup, who's been there for years, and he's seen the engagement rate really flounder, you know, about in the 30s for 15 years or so. He is actually optimistic. And one of the reasons he is, is that he says that millennials as a generation are making up a larger and larger proportion of the U.S. workplace. At some point, half the workers in the U.S. are going to be from the millennial generation. And when that happens, you're going to have half the workplace of a generation that really values doing meaningful work being engaged with their work, having in some senses less of a separation between work and their own life because when they first came to the workplace when the IT boom was still happening, you had a lot of startups and companies like that where young people would be at work all hours, would socialize with their coworkers, would do activities at work, you know, play dodgeball or foosball or whatever, and you would have less of a work-life separation. And they still have that value, but they want want it work to be meaningful to make a contribution. He says there's studies that say they'll actually be willing to work for less money if they find more meaning and contribution level in a job. So that will drive engagement because companies who do not make the effort to keep their employees engaged are going to lose these type of employees and they're not going to do as well. And though, so at least some companies are going to realize, you know what, it's in everybody's best interest to really focus on engagement and that's going to increase increase the engagement rate. Yes, it is interesting how the people who make up the workforce can actually affect, you know, the engagement rate, but managers definitely need to take this advice to heart. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, Holly. Terrorists have been targeting airports since the 1960s in a continual game of cat and mouse with security professionals. Scott Stewart, vice president of tactical analysis at Stratfor.com and lead analyst for Stratfor ThreatLens, talks to us about his April feature story on the growing threat of airport attacks and what methods can be employed to combat it. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Holly. Your article outlines some of the most prominent and deadly attacks that occurred at airports or onboard aircraft in the last few decades. So why do airports and airliners make such appealing targets for terrorists? 
Well, as, as far as airliners, basically we, we've seen going back to the 60s specifically, any attack against an airliner, whether it was a hijacking or a bombing, tends to result in just an incredible amount of media coverage. You know, if, if you think back into the, the 1980s and we, we had those kind of iconic terrorist attacks like TWA-847 with that hijacking, you know, on the tarmac there, or even, the, you know, the Pan Am-103 bombing and that iconic picture of, of the part of the cockpit resting on the ground there in Scotland. So really, because of the power of those images, the, the media that those images generate, that really holds a lot of, of weight with the terrorists who, you know, really seek to generate publicity. What, what they're trying to do through terrorism, obviously, is, is get the maximum amount of media exposure that they can for their cause by their actions. Now, as far as airports, I see them uh, as being a slightly different. Obviously, you do have that, that same media draw as aircraft. But one of the things about airports is they tend to be more of a, a transnational target. In many ways, they're much like attacking a large international hotel. You just have you know, a transnational clientele, and you're going to get a lot of international media whenever you conduct an attack against that kind of a target that has that many people from different countries there. You write that terrorists have used evolving tactics to counter the reactionary security measures put into place to combat the latest and greatest threat. What are some examples of attacks that illustrate that? Well, really, we really have seen this cat and mouse uh, arms race going on between security and terrorists. You know, from the 60s, if you think back, uh, you know, in the 60s, the, originally we didn't have metal detectors even in these airports. Uh, so it was very easy for terrorists to bring grenades and, and guns onto aircraft. Uh, once we started seeing magnetometers used to screen passengers, uh, we saw a shift there where the, the terrorists began to conduct bombings against aircraft using items uh, that were disguised in the luggage. Uh, so, you know, we kind of, there again, going back to Pan Am 103 and uh, the explosive device hidden in the cassette recorder, or we even saw, you know, groups uh, like the PFLP uh, hide explosives disguised as a ceramic tea set. They had actually melted and cast TNT to look like a, a, a tea set so they could use it in a bomb. So we really saw uh, bomb makers get creative to try to get past airline screening. And really, more, more recently, we, we saw in, in the 1990s an, an evolution where terrorists started uh, using uh, modular devices that they could uh, carry uh, onto a plane that, that were not necessarily intact, but something that could be assembled on board the plane and then used in attack. We saw that used, of course, in, in Operation Bojinka uh, out of the Philippines, and, and the test run there uh, which was an attack against Philippine Airlines 434, uh, in which they used a modular device uh, in which a, a baby doll uh, filled with nitrocellulose was the, the primary uh, explosive device. So we, we've really seen a, a, an adaptation to security uh, by these creative bomb makers. You know, we saw the, the shoe bomb. We saw the crotch bomb. And then uh, more recently, we've seen uh, attacks such as the one last year, in Somalia using a laptop. In light of all this, what are some of the airport security measures that security practitioners are currently pushing for, and are they even making a difference? Well, I, I think that because of this, this evolution, 
we really have seen newer screening machines coming out. And, uh, you know, the, the new generations of, you know, x-ray machines are, are much, much better, you know, than the ones were in, in the 70s or the 80s. And they're much better at detecting explosives. Of course, we also see, uh, you know, the explosive trace detectors and, and dogs and, and other uh, means used. Because of that, it really has become much more difficult to smuggle bombs aboard aircraft. Uh, especially for terrorist actors that, that aren't uh, very sophisticated in terms of their bomb-making tradecraft. Um, and that's really why we've seen this shift uh, towards airports. Um, you know, groups that would like to make a splash but don't have the capability to build a sophisticated device to get aboard a plane uh, can still make a, a big media headline and, and, you know, do the propaganda of the deed by conducting an attack uh, against an airport itself. And of course, you know, as we look at the airport, you, you really have, you know, two separate portions or sides of, of the facility that are separated by the security hard line. So you kind of have the, you know, the ground side or what we call the soft side of the airport. And then you have the air side or the harder side that's this past security. And a lot of the attacks recently uh, we've seen have occurred against that soft side. Uh, because it's much easier to attack, uh, you can do so uh, with, with less effort and really less sophistication, but you still get a big media pop. As we've seen in these attacks, uh, like the Domo de Dovo attack in, in Russia or the, the Brussels attack. So in your article, you don't just talk about the problems. You talk about solutions. You write about the need for more surveillance and information sharing to help combat attacks. How can improving these two tactics help prevent terrorism? One of the things that, that I think is necessary, and it is definitely applicable to the airport threat and this uh, you know simple attack threat to the soft side of airports, but it really goes wider to simple attacks in general. You know, they are easier to conduct than these more sophisticated attacks, but they are are still bound by the constraints of the terrorist attack cycle. And understanding that allows security practitioners to, to get uh, proactive instead of being reactive. You know, they can stay left of the boom. And so one of the places where, uh, you know, those planning an attack are very vulnerable is when they are conducting their pre-operational surveillance. And they have to do that. You, you just can't pull off even an attack uh, like the Istanbul attack or the Brussels attack, you can't do that uh, without doing pre-operational surveillance. Uh, and so by focusing on people that are conducting uh, that surveillance, and by the way, most terrorist operatives have terrible surveillance tradecraft, which is great for us uh, on the security side. And it really gives us something that we can focus on, you know, looking for people that have bad demeanor that don't have that cover for action, cover for status, that look out of place and awkward. And, and by focusing on the, them and, uh, you know, trying to uh, see if they are, in fact, uh, conducting surveillance or if they're, you know, they could just be awkward people doing legitimate business. Um, but still, by, by focusing on, uh, you know, these people that exhibit bad demeanor, uh, it really does allow you to, uh, you know, really get at all kinds of, of, of uh, criminal threats, too, not, not just terrorists. Um, so I really believe that that's something uh, that really needs much more emphasis, uh, you know, going forward is, is looking for that, that pre-operational surveillance, trying to nip the attack cycle at that point before it can really be completed. Thanks so much for joining us, Scott. Thanks for having me, Holly.
Finally, our member spotlight this month is on Tony Crabbit, a former FBI special agent and the founder of Risk Confidence Group, LLC. She joins us to talk about how her involvement in the association has helped her make connections with colleagues and advance her security career. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's just start out by learning a little bit more about your involvement and experience with ASIS International. When did you first become a member and how have you been involved since? Well, I've been involved kind of on the sidelines for years through the FBI. The security folks typically in the FBI offices were members of ACES and that's been for years. So I would go to meetings, certainly participated in writing for awards and things like that. So always a group that was of interest and supported the FBI, and and the FBI tried to support it. So I officially joined after my retirement in May of 15. I joined last year, 2016, and ended up attending the Orlando International Conference in September. And in January of this year, 2017, I became the chair of ACES Jacksonville chapter. Great. And if you want to tell us anything else about what your chapter is doing right now. Sure. Well, it, it's been kind of quiet in Jacksonville for the last uh, year or maybe a little bit more. When I went to join and, and get involved, I sat down with the regional vice president. And we talked about really trying to revitalize the chapter. There are over 130 members here in Jacksonville. Jacksonville's a beautiful place. There's a lot of business here, a lot of industry. We We've got the ocean front and we've got, you know, the river and the intracoastal. So there's a lot here, including the port and, and a lot of financial industry starting to move here. So myself, the vice chair, Travis Kinlaw, the treasurer, Scott Hess, and the secretary, John Miller, all stepped up in our board members, and we are meeting quarterly. We're trying to do some fun things, some networking things this year, and really take some baby steps this year with raise the interest again and um, and then hopefully full steam ahead in 2018. So how has your involvement in the society helped you advance your career and establish connections? I think what I've enjoyed most is actually having my own business, working in private industry and having that kind of time to really become involved in the society. It's enabled me to reconnect with a number of people who were former colleagues. It enabled me to be introduced to meet several potential strategic partners and develop some strategic partnerships. It has allowed me to keep abreast of issues, you know, reading periodically the discussion threads, looking at some of the research, and I hope to become involved in some of updating where I know you're working now on enterprise risk management as a whole. Um, I think there's a whole intelligence piece that is coming to security that can be very, very helpful too. And that's really where I am focusing in my business now. You started Risk Confidence Group LLC in 2015. Tell us what that organization does and what some of the challenges are that your clients bring forward. Shortly after retiring from the FBI, after almost 25 years, I started Risk Confidence Group LLC. And through that, we help organizations, you know, with the various challenges. And and the whole idea and and our focus is really to increase risk confidence by providing management consultation and services that support strategy, builds capability, um, builds that intelligence component, which I think, you know, maybe we're on the forefront here, but really becoming more intelligence-led in the security and safety areas. Um, And then also protection investigation and performance. And within performance, one of my passions is communication because we all know communication is the key to success uh, when something goes wrong, you know, before, during, and after. 
And um, even the best planning, sometimes the communication breaks down. So uh, without a good plan, you could really have some problems. And so I'm, I've really brought what I, you know, learned from my experiences in the FBI to the private industry and, and hope that will be of value to private industry. I certainly think it is. Some of the things I think that differentiate risk confidence group is that it is a woman-owned small business. Myself and my colleagues, my strategic partners, understand the threats. We've been involved in issues re regarding cyber, regarding access control and security issues, physical security. So we've been in a number of dynamic high-risk situations as responders and supervisors, spokespeople, executives. So there are things you just don't know to plan for if you haven't been in the situation. And like I touched on a little bit earlier, the importance of communication in times of uncertainty and crisis of many kinds is what breaks down, and even some of the best plans, it still is an issue. But with good planning, at least that will get you through it, because it all really then speaks to reputation. You were previously assistant special agent in charge of the FBI's Jacksonville field office. Tell us more about how that connects to what you're doing now and how all that experience helps you meet your clients' needs. Certainly as an FBI agent, that was you know, foremost in my mind, the same as in private industry, and that is taking care of your people, your facilities, your operations, and your reputation. So, so there's a lot of similarities in what I did before you know, as an agent and bringing that to private industry. The challenges that industry is facing today is what we see anyway in the trends. You certainly have the cyber concern. You have the advanced persistent threat issues. You have regular, not state-sponsored hacking. And then you have your access control. You have ransomware. You have any number of things that can compromise a system. You know, certainly I saw it from, a, I guess, behind the curtain look at things. And so I see what can happen and what the capabilities are. When you look at that and then you see in many organizations, the IT, cyber, and physical security are siloed. And I think there is a trend to merging the two together. And to do that effectively, I think you have to build the intelligence piece in into that because one can help the other. There's a lot that goes on in physical security with access control, with education of the workforce. In, in It's everybody's business. The protection of intellectual property, the protection of the systems and system access is everybody's business. There's a lot that, when they're siloed, is duplicated. When you bring them together, I think you're, you're going to save money and you're going to make a bigger impact. Thanks so much for joining us, Tony. Well, thank you so much. That does it for this month. Be sure to check out our recent special edition of the podcast on the London attacks, where I interview behavioral scientist Steve Cremando about the use of vehicles in recent acts of terror. Also, if you haven't had a chance yet, make sure you subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Security Management Highlights. Bye-bye.